If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 15? John chapter 15. We're spending the first three weeks of this series in John 15. So we started last week. We can continue this week, next week, and then on the final week, we're going to get... We're going to pivot a little bit. I'm going to tell you how this connection, this abiding connection, can really be implemented and lived out uh, in the life of our church. Today, we're going to begin in verse 5, and we're going to read all the way through verse 17. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 5. It says, Jesus talking, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, I pray, Father, that Iron City Baptist Church would be famous for how we love each other. That we would be famous for showing up in the dark night of the soul. That we would be famous for coming to funerals and sitting in intensive care waiting rooms. That we would be famous for feeding each other during grief. That we would be famous for coming and bringing reconciliation and peacemaking. That we would be famous for how we forgive each other. That we would be famous for how we support each other and spur one another on to good works. That, Lord, our legacy in this community would be an abiding love for one another and by having an abiding love for one another that we would make famous the abiding love that we have for our Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that by this they would know that we are your disciples by the way that we love one another. God, use this sermon to that end. Lord, use this sermon to refine us. Use this sermon to deepen our commitments. Use this sermon to reveal to us areas of unfaithfulness. Use this sermon, Lord, to paint for us a picture that is beautiful of the way that you intended the discipleship of communities, the discipleship community to be. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher once quipped, Europe was built by history, America was built by philosophy. And what she's getting at is that America really is a new kind of society. That never before had there been a society that was built on the values of personal liberty and self-evident truths and the pursuit of happiness. And never before had there been a society that enabled you to have upward mobility so that you weren't always destined to die in the same social class and in the same social standing into which you were born. 
And I'll tell you, it really was obvious to me how much I had taken this for granted a few years ago when Pastor Jeffrey came over from Swaziland to make his first visit to America. Now, you have to remember that Swaziland is about the size of Delaware. So you can drive from one end of the whole country to the other end of the country in about an hour. And so I asked Jeffrey before he was coming over, is there anything that you would like to see over here while you're here? I, I, we didn't know if he would ever get to come back or not. And Jeffrey, not having the context for just the sheer enormity of the United States, said, I would love to see Washington, D.C. in the White House. <laughs> he didn't realize it was an 11-hour drive to get there. But, but when the African makes a request... You want to fulfill it, right? And so we actually ended up, did, I, did, I took him on a whirlwind, two or three day trip up to D.C. And he's there, and man, he is living it up. He's taking selfies with the FBI cars, and he's going in front of the, the Capitol building and getting his picture made. And my favorite was, Jeffrey asked me, he said, can I go and see the president? I would like to make an appointment with the president because I want to share with him the gospel of Jesus. And, and we tried, and I said, Jeffrey, he needs to hear the gospel of Jesus as much as anybody, but... His schedule didn't allow it, so we, didn't, we weren't able to make it. But what I loved about Jeffrey is that he recognized that in this new society, that Washington, D.C. was really the epicenter. It was really the operating center of this new society in which he had only read about and only conceived of. And for a man like him who lives in a tyrannical dictatorship, he wanted to go and see where the soup was made. He wanted to go and see ground zero of this this philosophy of society in which he can only dream. And what's interesting is that Jesus has really come, when he talks about inaugurating his kingdom, in a way that our forefathers couldn't have even conceived of, in a way that so far transcends America, it doesn't even, doesn't even warrant comparison, Jesus is saying that he has come to form a new kind of humanity, a kind of humanity that will fulfill the vision of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 there in the Garden of Eden. And by forming this new kind of humanity, Jesus in the kingdom is going to form a new kind of society. A kind of society in which there is unbroken abiding relationship between man and God. A kind of society in which there is a theocracy, but the theocracy is not ruled by a pope or ruled by even a God-fearing king, but ruled by God himself. But until his kingdom comes, until it is fully consummated upon the return of Jesus, what we are meant to understand and what he is teaching here in John chapter 15 is that the epicenter of this new society, the epicenter of this new humanity is here in the local church. That among the body of Christ, among those of us who know Jesus and have had our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit so that we walk in fellowship with Jesus, that the way that we relate to each other, the way that we live among one another, the way that we encourage each other is meant to be a microcosm of what life in Jesus' kingdom is going to be for all eternity. And so I actually think that part of what we get in John chapter 15 is really a description of the characteristics of life in this new society. Now, the first characteristic that I want you to see is that it is defined by radical love. Defined by radical love. Now, none of us gets to choose the family into which we are born, do we? All of us are born into families with, with Aunt Bethany's and Cousin Eddie's and everything else in between, right? Just by the sheer fact that we're born, we are born into a particular family with a particular set of problems, with a particular reputation, with particular baggage. 
And for many of us, we actually spend the entirety of our lives grappling with the realization that just because we were born into this family, that we are expected to love this family forever and take care of this family forever and be connected to this family forever. Well, Jesus is saying something, I think, rather remarkable here. Jesus is saying, similar to the way that you have a birth family, you have a rebirth, a second birth, a born-again family. You are born once biologically into this world, and you have a birth family. You are born again into the spiritual world through Christ. And being born again, you are given a new family, a spiritual family in Christ. I want you to notice there in verse 5 at the top of your screen what it says. Jesus says, we, we talked about this last week, I am the vine, you are the branches. But what I want you to especially notice here is that he says branches. It's plural, right? You aren't an isolated branch in the vine. You are, by your connection to Jesus, brought into connection with other believers. You are, by your connection to Jesus, brought into the vine with a variety of other branches. And guess what? You didn't choose them either. That your birth family isn't chosen and your birth again family, your rebirth family isn't chosen. That these are chosen by Christ. That we are abiding in Christ and abiding in Christ we are necessarily to abide, to dwell, to lodge, to stay, to remain with one another. And our relationships with one another are meant to give a foretaste of what life is going to be like forever in this new society. That in our relationships with one another our love is meant to show who Jesus is. My father-in-law is one of these types of people who walks through the woods and he can name every single tree that he walks past. Just by looking at the bark of the tree and the leaves of the tree, he, he can't just tell you that it's an oak tree. He'll say, this is a water oak, this is a post oak, this is a white oak. And I've learned that these people cannot resist the urge to tell you all of their tree knowledge every time you go out with them. By the way, I love you, Daddy Bo. I love you so much. But it's true, right? And we all have our, have our things like this. Me, I need to see acorns and apples. You know what I mean? Like, if you want me to know it's an apple tree, I can't tell you by looking at the trunk, and I can't tell you by looking at the leaves. I need to see apples on the branches, and then I can tell you that it's an apple tree. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says something interesting. It says that we are hidden with Christ, that we are hidden from the world, that Jesus, the world, their eyes, because of sin, is blind to the person of Christ, blind to the realization that Jesus and Jesus alone is their Savior. They can't see because these things are spiritually discerned, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So what hope does our world have to catch a glimpse of Jesus? The hope that the world has to catch a glimpse of Jesus is by the fruit that's in your life. The fruit that is manifested on the branches that are abiding in the vine. And so, in verse 10, as we saw last week, I don't have it up there on the screen. In verse 10, Jesus had told us that the way that you're going to know that you love me, the way it is evident that you love me, the way that you express your love to me, is just the way that I express my love to the Father. I express my love to the Father because I lived according to his will, because I kept his commandments. And the way that you're going to express your love for me, the way it will be obvious that you will bear particular fruit, you will love me, you will keep my commandments just as I kept the Father's commandments. 
Well, what we're seeing here as Jesus continues his discourse is he has a particular commandment in mind. He has a particular application in mind. Now, he's not just using commandments in the broad sense. He's using the commandments in a very specific sense. And it's a commandment that has just happened at the Last Supper. It's a new commandment that's been given. It's a commandment, as we saw in the reading before the service started, it's a commandment that really defines so much of the ministry of the Apostle John. And it's the commandment to love one another. Uh, This is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's almost quoting directly what Jesus says after the Last Supper, as he's identified as betrayer, as Peter's denial has been predicted. Then he says what? He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And then By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another, have love for one another. That the fruit on the vine, that the the commandment that's kept, the expression of love to Jesus that is expressed is found in the love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Jesus. That our love for one another is to give the evidence to the glory of who it is that has saved us and the glory of the vine in whom we are now abiding. So here's what's interesting about this. And this is what he says, John says explicitly in 1 John 4 that I read earlier. That if you want to know how completely you are abiding in the vine, how well are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? If you want to see how, well, how completely you are abiding in the vine, evaluate how well you are loving one another. Because those who are abiding completely in the vine of Jesus bear the fruit of Jesus. And what is the fruit of Jesus? That you love one another. Brothers and sisters, this is why the modern iteration of the church just won't do it. Because it's less beautiful than the vision that Jesus has for his his community of disciples here that is being portrayed and put forward. The modern iteration of the church is let us have a well-produced, efficient service that gets you in and out, downloads on you a bunch of self-help principles, which, by the way, don't make your life better. They make your life worse because they end up being a a bag full of rocks that you got to carry every way. Another reminder that you can't do all the things that everybody says that you need to do to be able to be successful and have a good marriage have good finances. It's this bag of rocks that you're carrying, everyone. You go in, you come out, you're in and out in an hour. There's no accountability. There's no relationship. There's nobody to show up at your funeral. There's nobody to preach your funeral. There's nobody to care for you and offer counseling when your marriage is falling apart. That's not the vision, man. That's not the vision. Go to the early church and see how they lived this out. What did the early church do? You need food? Have mine. Oh, you need needs met? Let me go sell my field and give you the proceeds. You need, you're going through the heart. Your family kick you out because you love Jesus now? I've got a room. I've got a bed. You come and live with me. You come and stay with me. You're going through the hardest moment in your life? Let me bear the burden with you. You have friction between you and your husband? Let me come in and be a peacemaker in your life, in your marriage, with your kids. Let me ask you, which one is more beautiful? Which portrait more clearly shows by this they will know you are my disciples? Listen, we've got to paint a beautiful portrait of Christ for our kids, don't we? We do. We've got to show them that the church, those are the people that come and sit with you in the waiting room of the intensive care unit. The church, those are the people that come and cook for you when your husband has passed on to the next life. 
The, husband, the, the church, those are the ones that prepare meals for you when you bring a new baby home or when you're living over in the, uh, in the NICU. The, the, the church, they're the ones that show up for you when your marriage is falling apart. The church, those are the ones that you can confide in and that you can trust. The church, we have to paint for the next generation if they are to glimpse Jesus and want Jesus and love Jesus, what it looks like to love each other. Because by the way that we love each other, we are putting on full display who Jesus is. So we're to be characterized in this new society, in this microcosm, at the epicenter, here in the church, a radical love which shows our love for Jesus and a radical love which shows ultimately not just who Jesus is, but who, who we are, who I am, who you are. And it's pretty evident that as we grow and we see all the difficulties that are faced in the church and we see all the difficulties that are faced in, the li- in, in our lives, that we can't do this by ourselves, Right? That we need help. And that we, we can't live the Christian life. We, that, that illustration of being atta- detached from the, from the vine and the branch and the, and the death that surely ensues, it becomes obvious to us, doesn't it? And so Jesus is really concerned that we have proof that we abide in the vine. He says it there in verse 8. So prove to be my disciples. And then he goes on again in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments. And so Jesus is here giving us a test for our faith. And he's saying, do you want to test whether or not you love me? Do you want to test whether or not you are actually abiding in me and walking with me? Well, the test of your love for me is, do you obey me? Do you obey me? Well, now he's taking it a step further here in verse 12. Having said, do you want to know if you, you want to test whether or not you love me? Do you obey me? Well, now we need to test our obedience. Do you want to know if you obey me? Well, how well do you love each other? How well do you love your brother and your sister in Christ? How well do you love the ones that come against you? You see, obeying and following Jesus is easy in, in, in concept, right? It, it's simple. That when I'm in the classroom if, and I'm sitting in the congregation on Sunday morning, obeying Jesus, that makes sense to me. That seems personally ra- perfectly rational to me. That seems perfectly reasonable to me. Obeying and following Jesus becomes hard when you stand in my way. And obeying Jesus becomes hard when I'm standing in your way. That obeying Jesus becomes difficult when my relationship with you requires me to forgive you of something because you've hurt me. Because you've wounded me. My relationship, my obedience to Jesus becomes really difficult when obeying Jesus means coming into your life and taking on your drama into my life and, and so that I can come in and bear the burden with you. Obeying Jesus becomes really, really difficult when it requires me to come in and have difficult conversations and to be a mediator so that I can be a, a peacemaker in the way of the cross and facilitate reconciliation in the way that Jesus has facilitated it. That obeying Jesus is really simple in the classroom, but it isn't proven in the classroom. Obeying Jesus is expressed in the battlefield. Obeying Jesus isn't just some mental exercise. Abiding in Jesus is not just some mental exercise that I do on Sundays. Abiding in Jesus is how I relate to the body of Christ on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. See, we need to have a conversation here about church hurt, don't we? Church hurt is a real thing. My goodness. One of my favorite ministries, and it was not really sought, the Lord has just done it. One of my favorite ministries that the Lord has allowed us to have here at Iron City has been to be a hospital for people that are suffering from church hurt. 
come in, maybe, maybe you were under a spiritually abusive ministry, or, or maybe you were a pastor and you were betrayed and lied about by your congregation. Some of you were in a congregation and you were with people that you loved and you thought you were going to be with those people forever, and then they, they turned on you, they didn't show up, and you're just hurt. You've been betrayed in ways that you couldn't have anticipated in the church, and and you've been sinned against in ways that is completely unbecoming of the body of Christ. And so you come to Sunday today and you're limping. You're limping. Or maybe it's a long time ago and that wound is calloused over. But the temptation, the temptation is to say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm just going to show up. I'm going to slip in at the beginning. I'm going to slip out really quickly at the end. And I'm going to go to Cracker Barrel. I'm going to check it off my list. Or I'm just going to go on the live stream so that I don't have to deal with all of the stuff, with all of the people. And look, I get it, man. Like, I've been there. I've been betrayed. I've been let down by people that I would have thought it was impossible for them to. I've been sinned against by people in egregious ways. I, and the tendency in me to say, okay, that's fine, that's fine. This is just going to be my job then. I'm just going to show up, I'm just going to preach the sermon, I'm just going to go home. Th that, that's how we, we all get there. But you see, it's in the muck and the mire of betrayal and disappointment and frustration and letdown and offense in which we have the opportunity to put it on fullest display, the radical love of Jesus. What I'm not saying is I'm not saying go and, and subject yourself to abuse. I would never say that. But what I am saying, church family, is that we must submit ourselves to the cross. We must submit ourselves to the cross. And we must go to the cross and remember that it was there at the cross that I swung the hammer. It was there at the cross that I brought offense to God. It was there at the cross that my sins were answered for. It was there at the cross that Jesus forgave me of what I should not have been forgiven. So I must revisit there myself so that the Lord can begin the healing process in me so that I can live out this command radically to love one another. Because this is a defining characteristic of the new society and it must be a defining characteristic of God's church. Second characteristic I want you to see is objective love. Objective love. I started off by reading from 1 John chapter 4. And in 1 John chapter 4, John says something that's really profound. John says, God is love. And we love that statement, don't we? Like we could literally spend every day for the rest of our lives searching the depths of that and not find the bottom, right? God is love. But there's something interesting, I think, that is happening in our culture. That our culture, especially with its Christian background to some degree, is actually beginning to inverse that. That no longer are we saying that God is love, but we're beginning to say now that love is God. I actually think that this song is fairly recent by the Zach Brown Band. It's called Remedy. Gets to what I'm, what I'm saying. Zach Brown Band sings this. Jesus preached the golden rule. Buddha taught it too. Gandhi said, eye for an eye makes the whole world go blind. With a little understanding, we can break these chains that we've been handed. I've got the medication. Love is the remedy. And he climaxes at the end of the song, the crescendo moment, the landing point of the song is this, God is love one another. Now, if love, is if God is love, what does that mean? It means that love has a moral center. It means that love is something objective, something definable, something tangible, something that you can wrap your mind around. You can, in other words, you can know what love is because love is what God says that it is. But if love is God, then it becomes something squishy, something soft, something, something subjective, something that, that 
what I think love is, may be different than what you think love is, may be different than what your neighbor thinks that love is. It becomes impossible to know exactly what love is because there are as many definitions of love as there are people in the world. And so it becomes something indefinable, something unsearchable, something that you can never really know if you actually have, and it can become something actually that is immoral because it has no moral center. And I think that what we see Jesus saying here in John 15 is something that he says throughout. It is the exact opposite of that. That, that love is not something sentimental and emotional and squishy. Love is, in fact, definable. That love will pay the price. That you can know love, true love, when you see it. Because true love will always pay the price. In other words, when he's defining love for his disciples, what does Jesus do? He takes them for a pre-visit to the cross. He says to them, greater love has no one than this, than someone would lay down his life for his friends. That, that, in other words, love isn't something squishy. Love isn't something that you use to justify all the things that you want to justify. Love isn't the thing that you use to heap guilt on other people when they don't, when they, when they don't approve of the lifestyle that you have. Love is not something that you use to be able to get your way. In fact, love is the exact opposite of that. Love is spilled blood. That's what love is. That he's getting to the nature of love. And he's wanting you to recognize that, that love means literally that I'm going to deny myself and lay down my life for your good. And it's not just death that he has in mind. That's important for you to recognize. Logic would say that if I'm willing to die for you, surely I'm willing to live for you, right? That the concept that's coming up here is a concept of sacrificial love. And what is sacrificial love? Sacrificial love is any time that I'm willing to do what's best for you, even though it's not what's best for me. I'm willing to do what's best for you even though it's not what's best for you. It's whenever I, my love for you comes at some kind of cost to me. And you can see that this is obviously the way Jesus loves his disciples. And Jesus is saying, just as I have loved you, in the same way, in the same sacrificial manner, that's how I expect you to love one another. And by the way, you can't even know that you love something or someone until you sacrifice for them, right? If your love never has any cost, what does it even mean? So Jesus is holding up this example to say that this, this ought to be where it hurts. Let me tell you where I've learned this. I've learned this in our church through our senior adults. Through our senior adults. I, I, people ask me all the time, okay, like, how, tell me the secret sauce of Iron City. T tell me how the church has grown. Tell me how these things. And, and answer A is I, I'm truly convinced it's the favor of God. But the second thing I always say is that we hit the senior adult lottery. We hit the senior adult lottery. Let me tell you, the church that most of our senior adults grew up in looks nothing like our church looks today. And if they were to have their preferences, I bet you the music would look different than it looks today. I bet you that the programs would look different than they do today. I, I, I bet the, the, the emphases would be different than they are today. But you know what we had we had a group of senior adults that said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to live out the Great Commission by serving young families. And so what they did, rather than complain about this or gripe about that or insist on this, is they said, they said, let me memorize the names of all the young mamas. They said, let me go into the preschool ministry and care for our preschoolers. Mary Vaughn, two weeks ago, was at youth camp cooking for our teenagers. Three meals a day. 
they have served us in the kitchen and in the nursery and in the preschool. They, they are there to open the doors for us when we come to church on Sunday morning to give us a hug. They're there to counsel with us when we experience miscarriage and, and death in our lives. They're, they're there to, to cook meals for us when, when there's a funeral. They're there and they love us over and again at great expense to themselves for our benefit. Y'all, when you turn that loose in a church, when you turn that loose in a church, you're ready to flourish. You're ready to go to heights unseen. And I'm telling you right now that if we can take what we've seen among, and when you have, by the way, when you have the oldest saints, the most mature saints living the most sacrificially in the life of the church, that's the Titus 2 model. That's when they're setting the pace. That's what's beautiful. I'm telling you, it is not me that's setting the pace. It is them. It is those senior saints working in the, in the shadows of this church without appreciation that are driving it forward, sowing for people and visiting people and loving people. Gosh. If we can turn this loose in our student ministry, and we can turn this loose in our young marriages, and we can turn this loose in our children's ministry, we can turn this loose in our music ministry, if you can turn this loose in your house, if you can turn this loose in your parenting, like if you can turn loose this idea that I'm not going to concern myself with my preferences, I'm not going to concern myself with what's best for me, I'm going to concern myself with what's best for y'all, what's best for us, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. This is the kind of love that Jesus envisions when he envisions the church. This is the kind of love that he envisions for his disciples. Love that pays the price and that love that goes the distance. When Jesus talks about laying down his life, what do we remember that he does? He hangs on the cross until when? It is finished. That there's something about the totality of the sacrifice that Jesus is describing the finality of the sacrifice that Jesus is describing that is meant to describe the way that we love each other. That in other words, that the way that Jesus is defining love for his disciples is with the word in which we are, to which we are allergic in today's society, commitment. Commitment. That wherever there is an unwillingness to commit, there is necessarily a lack of love. And so Jesus goes to the cross, hangs on the cross, until it is finished because he loves his church. Because he loves his disciples. Because he loves the glory of his Father's name. And Jesus is saying, just as I have loved you, just as I have laid down my life, just as I have made the ultimate commitment to you, you are to commit to each other. Go deep with one another all the way to the end. That is, what we're supposed to see in the church is not the evidence of the cohabitation culture that exists outside the church. What does cohabitation say? Cohabitation says, I think I love you until something better comes along. I think I love you so long as you don't gain too much weight. I think I love you as long as I remain sexually satisfied. I think I love you unless I get bored with you. I think I get... I think I love you unless somebody more interesting comes along. What does marriage say? Till death do we part. That I am making a commitment on the front end. That whether you gain 5 pounds, 10 pounds, or 30 pounds, I love you. I'm making a commitment right now that if your health fails tomorrow and all of this falls apart and we can enjoy all the dreams that we have, I love you. I'm making the commitment that when life is hard, I love you. When I am bored, I love you. I'm committing myself to you. And when we hold these up, which would we say is love? 
Which would we say is love? We know, right? That is what is meant to break loose in the life of the church. That for a season, I understand. You may need to just attend for a little while to heal. I get that. You may be going through stuff in your life and, and the anonymity of a crowd is, is powerful and needed for you. I get that. What I'm telling you is if you stay there, you won't realize the full beauty of what it means to be in the body of Christ. That to love one another in the body of Christ is necessarily to commit to each other. Not just to attend, but to join in membership, in a covenant with one another. To say ultimately, in some form, till death do us part. Even if I get bored sometimes on Sundays, I'm in. Even if the programs change a little bit, I'm in. Even if the direction's a little more, a little different than what I wish it was, I'm in. I'm in. So long as we are holding the Bible and seeking to glorify Jesus, like I am in. I'm committed to us. And there's something beautiful about that, right? I hold up to you when I held up to you last January when I said, like, let's grow old together, y'all. Let's grow old together. Let's go through this life and commit to one another and, and go through the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs and the conflicts. And let's join together when it's really exciting. And let's join together when it's really hard. Like, that's the beauty of Jesus going to the cross and saying, it is finished. It is seeing it all the way through. Love cannot be truly expressed apart from a commitment. Have we ever conceived that perhaps that's why God gives us a law? Because it is in the framework of the law that we have an ability to properly express our commitment and our love to Jesus. And that is the same that is meant to be in the life of the church. That a defining characteristic of this new society is objective love. And finally, it is intimate love. Intimate love. I love this, man. Like Jesus says something that is so remarkable. He says, you are my friends. Not like you're my associates you're my colleagues, you're my students. He looks at Matthew and John and Peter. And y'all, we've seen how often they messed up, right? And we've seen that. He looks at these men in the midst of all their egotistical mess-ups and all of their unfaithfulness and even in light of their coming denial and betrayal. And he looks at these people. And he says, you're my friends. Like, I care about you. I feel close to you. And what separates them? He tells us. This is, I think this is amazing. He, he, doesn't, he tells us what differentiates a servant from a friend, doesn't he? Look at verse 12, verse 15. No longer do I call you servants. You're, you're more than that, he says. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is looking at these disciples and he's saying, you're my inner circle, man. Like, Jesus is modeling for us transparency with his disciples. He's saying, look, everything that the Father, he's talking about the will of the Father, he's talking about the upcoming cross, he's talking about the difficult days afterward, and he's looking at them and he's saying, look, I've let you in on what's happening in my heart. I've let you in on what's happening in the future. I've let you in on what the plans are. Because you're not just servants, you're not just workers, you're friends of mine. And I believe that this transparency is meant to be reflected in the life of the church. That just as Jesus confided in his disciples and bore his heart to his disciples and opened up his life to his disciples, that we're now to be a community of transparency that in similar way does similar things. That's why we can't just settle for being a church service here. I tell you that all the time. A church service is not enough because a church service does not bring the beauty of Christ and the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the, of the body of Christ into full view. That we can't just be a church service. We have to be a church family. 
a church family, a, a place in which we can be transparent with one another, a place in which we can confide with one another, a place in which we can suffer together. That this has to be the place where it's okay that you're not okay. This has to be the place where you can confess your sins. Here's what happens for so many of us. So many of us live our entire lives lonely. We live our entire lives lonely. We carry secrets from our childhood, abuses that we've faced, hardships that we've known. We, we've known. We, we carry emotions that we haven't dealt with. We go into adulthood, we, we face grief and loss and disappointment, and we bottle that stuff up, and we don't, we don't disclose all of those kind of things. We have sins in our lives, we bottle those things up. And what happens when you have secrets is you feel isolated. You feel alone. You feel like you have to carry all of those things. Except here is Jesus, with all that he has, confiding in his disciples. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does he do? He, he looks at his disciples and says, I need you to pray for me, I'm struggling right now. I'm having a hard time. You're not just my servants. You're my friends, and I need my friends. Now, that's what the church is supposed to be for each other. Don't you see that? Like, this isn't supposed to be the place you have to come and have a fake smile. And this isn't supposed to be the place that you come and have to dress up and pretend like you're doing better than you are. That this is the place where you come and you download your secrets and you download your grief and you download your fears and you confess your sins so that ultimately you can be reminded, I am not alone. That not only am I never alone because I have Christ in whom I abide, I am never alone because I have branches, I have a church with whom I abide. This is the vision for our connection groups. We're not there yet. This is, we're not there yet. It's not just a place for us to talk about the new football coach in Alabama. It's not just a place for us to just get through a lesson. It's a place for us to confide and be transparent in our lives. It's a place for us to be reminded that we are not alone. But church, I don't want you to just have this vision for connection groups. Like all of the fellowship of the church and the activity of the church has to happen on the campus of the church. I want you to have this vision for your dining room table. I want you to have this vision for Cracker Barrel. Like, I, I, I want you to have this kind of vision where you join together with other brothers and sisters in here to say, look, I, I, you've always said I can count on you. Let me tell you what's going on. Let, 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 me, let me hear about what's happening in your life. To build the kinds of friendships and the kinds of relationships like Jesus had built with his disciples there, grilling fish on the side of the Sea of Galilee to say, to say look, I've confided in you. You're not just an acquaintance. You're not just an arm's length fellow church member. You are my friends. You are my friends. We're going to be a community of transparency, but also of codependency. Of codependency. He says something really, really cool there in verse 16. He says, you did not choose me. We talked about this, right? You didn't choose your birth family. You don't choose your rebirth family. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And what's interesting in the Bible is as often as it talks about election, it almost always talks you not just being elected into a new status, but into a mission. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Now, one of the things that I want to point out to you is all of the yous, and this is really hard to see in English translations, but all of the yous are really y'alls. You know what I mean? They're plural yous. These are you all, y'all, youans, right? Like, so throughout John chapter 15... He's not talking to you. He's talking to you, y'all. And so he's looking at them and he's saying, y'all didn't choose me. I chose y'all. 
Y'all are brought all together. Y'all are friends with one another. Y'all know one another. Y'all partner together because I chose to make it that way. So then he uses, he says, so and I appointed it this way on purpose. The word appointed there is used in Acts and other places in the New Testament to talk about being called into the ministry. That God has a specific call on your life. And now he's here using it in a general sense, in a generic sense, to looking at the entire body of Christ and saying, I chose you and I appointed you because I knew what you needed with one another. And in other words, in the body of Christ, it is always that the sum of the parts is better than the individual pieces. That God is bringing all of us together with all of our different backgrounds and all of our different spiritual gifts. And he has appointed us to come together at this particular church, at this particular time, for this particular mission. That God has brought us together, that we can advance together in the Chiha Valley, into the ends of the earth, to make disciples who are flourishing according to his name. That he has brought us together, and he knows why you're in Iron City Baptist Church. You are appointed and arranged specifically in the body of Christ. That, way, that means there are people here that you're called to encourage. There are people here that Jesus has sent you to encourage. There are people here that Jesus has sent you to partner with. There are people here that Jesus has sent you here to teach. There are people here that Jesus has sent you here to disciple. Jesus has appointed and arranged and chosen and put all of this thing together in his infinite wisdom so that the sum of the parts can work better than the individual pieces so that we can flourish. And that means, that means that if you're not connected and you're not encouraging, there are people that are remaining discouraged. There are people that are remaining on the edge of giving up. That means there are people that are remaining untaught. There are people that are remaining uncared for. There are people that could be connected right now that are not connected because you're not doing the work of connecting. No, we've all got to come together and for the purpose of the mission, collectively, come together and encourage one another and take up our appointed roles in the body of Christ, in the mission of Jesus, in the will of the Father, to press on into the Chiha Valley for the glory of Jesus' name. That God has brought us together so that collectively we might keep one another in the mission. I'll tell you, this has happened in my life. I'm more than, I, I've stood up here time and again over the last ten and a half years and told you that, like, if it wasn't for our elders, if it wasn't for our deacons, if it wasn't for this person or that, that, that I would not be standing as your pastor. Okay, this came, this come, what comes into my mind, Jesus actually lands this here so that whatever you ask, and remember, this is y'all, whatever y'all collectively come for and ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And I think about what this looked like in my life a few years ago. I had four years of headaches, and out of all the health things that I faced, the back and the stomach, the headaches were by far the worst. And I had four years, I had one headache that lasted for seven months, I had another headache that lasted for eight months. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I tried every kind of treatment, I tried state-of-the-art drugs, I tried multiple neurologists, I went and did inpatient, um, inpatient infusions. And I was in a D group at the time, and I began to just confide in those guys that I was really at the point of despair. Migraines are the leading cause of disability in those that have neurological disorders. And I'm telling y'all, I was really close to being there. I was really close to being there. And I began to confide in a group of men that I was meeting with regularly on Thursday mornings and just telling them that, like, I don't know how much longer I can keep going. I've lost my personality. I'm not the daddy I want to be. I'm not the husband I want to be. I'm not the pastor I want to be. I just don't know that I'm going to be able to do this. And so some of the men said, what we need to do is we need to all gather together and pray for you. And I thought, well, yeah, that would make sense, wouldn't it? And so they encouraged me, and they, and they, they, uh, they, pr- they 
uh, kept me going. They would send me encouragements. But on one particular Thursday morning, they, we all gathered here in the sanctuary. And they gathered around me sitting in a chair. And they laid their hands on me. And they prayed over me. I mean, it seemed like it was for each man. It was like seven men. And each man to a man prayed a lengthy prayer over me that, that the Lord would interrupt this pain and bring healing into my life. And it wasn't two weeks after that I had the worst migraine of my life. Literally laying in the floor of my bedroom. And allowing my mind to go to dark places and saying things like, Lord, how in the, why do you keep picking on me? Statements of complete unbelief. But the next week, I would like to tell you it got better, but I got COVID. This was in 2020. I got COVID. But, interesting, I was the following, I was actually to go into the hospital for three or four days for headache treatment. And I got COVID and I wasn't able to go. And in the process of treating COVID, my headaches resolved. And we were able to find that the simplest treatments possible that I was able to treat for COVID, we had tried state-of-the-art everything, completely resolved my headaches. All of a sudden, my energy came back, my personality came back, my passion for the ministry came back, my fun at home came back. I re-enrolled in seminary, which I had long forgotten. My desire was rekindled inside of me. But don't you think for one second, it's not lost on me how miraculous that is. Four years, people with neurology degrees at the University of Alabama couldn't figure it out. But a group of brothers in my church, ordinary men, prayed over me, supported me, and the Lord saw fit to keep me in the fight. Can I tell you something? We need each other. We need each other. We need each other's encouragement. We need each other's frustrations. We need to sharpen each other the way iron sharpens iron. We need to knock off the hard edges from one another. We need each other's prayers. Church family, we have to remember that we're never alone. And we have to see to it that our brothers and sisters never feel alone. Can we pray the Lord together? Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.